This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Thinking about all the things associated with the end of life can be a little daunting. And so the Canterbury Workers' Education Association hosted a short series of talks to provide some clear information and guidance around advanced care planning. Today, we hear from lawyer Philippa Shaw from Harmon's Lawyers about what is an enduring power of attorney and when might one be needed. So when I start off, I'd just like to talk about there's sometimes confusion between setting up your enduring powers of attorney and your will. Um, I often have clients that come in and say, yes, I've got a person in mind that I want to be my attorney, but they're talking about their will, their executor of their will. So, and also when they're doing their wills, they say, and make sure this person's my attorney, and you can't do it in that document. So a will is a document where you do name executors to carry out the wishes of your, in your will, um, and that only ever comes into effect after you have died. So your will is not an effective document until you've died, and then it's your latest will, as long as it's valid, will be the document that can be used to deal with your, affair, your estate. But your attorney is someone that acts for you while you are living. And your attorney that you've appointed, their role ends the day you die. Wherein is another source of confusion. Very frequently I see where attorneys have been dealing with all the affairs for possibly a parent um, and having access to their bank accounts to pay their bills for them and then they die and the attorney rushes off and withdraws a whole lot of money to cover the funeral because they're concerned the bank's going to freeze the account and they won't be able to pay for it. It's not necessary to do that and it's not really legal to do that. Your role as an attorney finishes the day the person that's appointed you dies. So and there are other ways to deal with payment for a funeral. Most banks allow payment on receipt of the funeral invoice before probate has been granted. So attorneys don't need to panic about that. So that's sort of the opening area, just to not confuse your attorneys with the people that you appoint in your will. And secondly, we've always had the ability to set up a power of attorney um, for particular transactions or events. So it might be that you're in the middle of selling your home but you're about to go overseas um, and you'd set up a power of attorney naming someone that can sign your documents for you. Those powers of attorney are called general powers of attorney and they stipulate in that document who you've named and what they can actually sign and the sort of limit around what they can do. Now any general power of attorney is only effective while you have mental capacity. So if you lose mental capacity, a general power of attorney can no longer be used. And that's why we now have enduring powers of attorney, because they endure after you've lost mental capacity. So that's the meaning of the enduring part of it.
they are a really important document to have in place because none of us ever know when we might lose mental capacity. It might not be a gradual loss of capacity. It is sometimes. People can get medically assessed as having um, the beginning of some sort of a dementia illness and they'll be told, make sure you set up enduring powers of attorney. But these events can happen very suddenly. You can have a stroke, you could be in a car accident, or you could have any other sort of health event, which means you've lost mental capacity. And if you haven't set up an enduring power of attorney, it can be quite difficult to deal with different matters. And in some cases, if you, it really was required, then an attorney had to make a decision for you and you haven't set up enduring powers of attorney, then it's the expense of going to court to have a court-appointed guardian for welfare and a court-appointed manager for property, which is an, an expensive exercise. So, you know, it's wise if we all get round to it, putting all our affairs in order to actually have enduring powers of attorney set up. You need two and because they are expensive now, because they're such a big document, sometimes people come and say, no, I only want one of them. But, you know, honestly, if you're going to need one, you're probably going to need the other. The two documents that you have is an enduring power of attorney for care and welfare, and that's the person that makes decisions about your care and welfare when you have lost mental capacity. There's also an enduring power of attorney for property, and that's where you nominate someone to be your attorney or more than one person to deal with anything to do with your property, including bank accounts, bills, your home, your motor vehicle, anything you own is dealt with under the property enduring power of attorney. So there's always two required. So back in the day, they were a simple document. It was on one page and generally no more than one paragraph saying, I nominate this person to be my attorney for care and welfare. Um, and it, the same paragraph might have said, and for property matters. Um, the government had a big review of this and had lots of committee meetings and looked at lots of areas where they were very concerned that people were actually being ripped off by their attorneys. They felt there was a prevalence of for example, children marching parents into a lawyer's office to say, mum or dad needs to make me their attorney, I need to deal with their things now, and they would sign a document in front of the lawyer with their child present. So as a means of trying to protect from that situation, we have gone into a scenario where in 2008, the government introduced new forms that had to be used for enduring powers of attorney, and where it was stated that anyone that witnessed you appointing your attorney, that lawyer had to be independent of the attorney. So the lawyer or the legal executive or a trustee company, they have to complete a certificate to say that they are independent of the attorneys. So this was a way to make sure you're protecting against someone that's marching you in and you might be under undue influence or pressure or whatever, but now you have to see a lawyer without the attorney present, and that the lawyer cannot be someone that's acted for the attorney. <clears throat> we 
What that led to was it meant when quite commonly a husband and wife would appoint each other, um, the law firm wasn't able to witness their documents because they acted for the other one. So we had to send the husband to one law firm and the wife to another law firm. So you suddenly had three law firms involved in doing an enduring power of attorney. It put a lot of people off doing them. It made them even more expensive because you paid for this lawyer and that lawyer. Um, and so in 2010, the law was changed to allow for an exemption where if a husband and wife or a couple are appointing each other, the same legal person, it's either a lawyer or a legal exec or a trustee company, that same person can witness within the same firm, they can witness the husband and wife appointing each other. We still can't witness if we have acted for any of the other attorneys. So you would commonly appoint each other first and then have what we call a successor. So if that person you've appointed can't act, you have someone else you've named which would most often be a child. Now if the law firm had acted for that child in the past, again we can't witness that document we have to send for independent legal advice. But So that was the 2010 change and then in 2016 there was a further law change where the documents that are used are now standard, so everyone has the same enduring power of attorney documents, and they include um, explanation notes, which are set in law, and that's the same set of notes that are going to be on every document produced around the country since 2016. And they're meant to be plain English. This is um, a copy of standard notes to go with the enduring power of attorney for care. The, the format of this document is exactly the same and you just fill in the boxes. Yeah. And that's the explanatory notes for a property enduring power of attorney. So this is what they look like and that's what you'll see if you go in to have one done. Um, I know that you can download them and complete them yourself, but to be valid they still have to be witnessed by a lawyer, a legal exec, or a trustee company, and that person has to sign a certificate that when you signed it, you understood what you were signing, that you had looked, read, or received these notes, and that we felt you had capacity when you signed to make that decision about your attorneys. So that were all the changes that brought about these documents, which are now around 20 pages long each. So, they do cost more, obviously, than your one-page document, and that's why it's important that you do it right the first time, because you do have the ability now to appoint someone and then to say who you'd want to step in if that person couldn't act, and you can do that several times over. You can have second, you know, first, second and third successor attorneys. It also gives you a bit of flexibility, because if the first person you appointed dies, you've got the next one ready to step in. You don't need to change the document because you can't go back and just amend an enduring power of attorney document later. You have to do a new one. So have the flexibility where it's already in place. And again, you might decide against an attorney that you appointed several years ago. You can revoke an attorney if you've got mental capacity and you do it in writing and give them notice. 
And if you've got other successor attorneys in your document, the document will still carry on and you'll still have those other attorneys in place. You won't need to do a new one. So put, you know, doing it right the first time is very beneficial in the long run. If I, may, if I did my enduring power of attorney quite a lot of years ago, um, and it's the original sort of one-pager, um, is that that's still OK? Yes, it's or still valid. Yes. Um, so an enduring power of attorney is not actually valid until it's signed by you, the donor, and signed by the attorneys. So the whole document needs to have everyone's signatures witnessed correctly in the certificate, and then it's in place, it's a valid document. So as long as your document, and there has been, I've seen examples in firms where um, people would come in and say, look, I'm going to appoint my children as my attorneys, and they would prepare it, and those parents would sign, but the children haven't signed yet, and the lawyer would say, well, when you need it, we'll get your child to sign then. That's not a valid document, and it can't be used now because it's gone past the date where if, it's no, if it wasn't valid as that 2008, it won't be now. But that's a bit unusual. Hopefully not too many people did that. Um, to set up enduring powers of attorney, you have to have sufficient capacity to do it. So like I said, we do have situations where people are becoming quite unwell and it's a call as to whether they've got enough capacity to set them up. Um, it's a, a lower threshold of capacity than writing a will. We need to know that you understand the broad consequences of what you're doing, that you can process the relevant information and that you can appreciate the nature and the effect of the power that you're giving to someone. If we feel, and if we're not sure, we would actually get our client to get their doctor to write a wee certificate to say they believe they've got sufficient capacity to set up enduring powers of attorney. Um, the document itself, as I say, it's 20 pages, there's quite a few choices that you can make now, which is great because it gives you more control over what you're saying to your attorneys and what you want them to do. As opposed to your existing one that's one page, you didn't have any of those choices about you know, other things that you could put in the document. There certainly have a lot of things now that you can tick and add in notes as to what you want to happen. Um, it's the first decision, obviously, you've got to make is who will be your attorney, and that's a really important decision. And I know it's a real struggle for people who don't have family or don't have trusted friends they feel they could ask, but sometimes you might be surprised that friends are willing to do it even though you're embarrassed to ask them. Um, I've had that situation with someone who for a year has been telling me, I don't have anyone, I don't know what to do, I don't have anyone I can ask. And we've gone through possibilities, and one of them was a nephew, and she said, I can't ask him. She finally asked him last month, and he said, I'd be honoured to do it. And she's so relieved. And so sometimes there are people, if you just take that next brave step of asking them, but I know there are people too that have no one, which is a real concern, but you can talk to some organisations about that. Age Concern have some information. There are a couple of private organisations that will act as your attorney and they charge you on a sort of a time basis. Although when I spoke to one, they're sort of fully booked and they can't fit any more people in at the moment. So, And some of the um, public trust, perpetual trust type people might act as your property attorney, but that's just 
if you haven't really got anyone else you can ask yourself. So you should look for someone that you trust and respect and feel comfortable that they will follow your wishes and that they will make the decisions that you would be comfortable with. If you think in particular about your care and welfare enduring power of attorney, it only becomes effective if you have been certified as having lost mental capacity. So at that point you're not going to know what your attorney is doing. So it's really important that you've chosen someone that would know how you feel about the sort of decisions and the sort of things you would want to happen. So you can have the same person to be your attorney for care and for property, but quite frequently people have different people. Not that they have to, but they feel they know someone who would be quite caring and knowledgeable about health issues and would be a good care attorney, whereas they know someone else that's very good at managing money and dealing with financial records and would be a good property attorney. You may cover this later, but the process of declaring somebody not to have mental capacity, how does that happen? Or will you be covering that? Um, I can mention it now, that's fine. Um, so for an adjuring power of attorney for care and welfare, any significant matter cannot be dealt with until there is a medical certificate. So it has to be from a medical professional. There was a period after 2008, 2010, where you actually stipulated who that medical person had to be, but that quickly became very limiting if that person wasn't available. So it's now just taken in general that there will be a medical practitioner specialised in that field, Will and there's no formal certificate now. There used to be under the Act a prescribed certificate. There's not now. They just want a certificate that states the things required to be stated under the Act, which is that this person lacks capacity to make a decision. So that could be your GP, for instance? Absolutely. Or they lack the, the ability to understand the nature of the decision or to foresee the consequences or to communicate. It might just be that you can't communicate too. So that is a medical certificate absolutely required before a significant decision is made about a care and welfare matter. And they define significant as something that's quite life-changing, like having to move from where you're living to a care facility or a major operation. So yes, choosing that attorney is important. And like I say, being, having the flexibility to have other attorneys that you could name that could step in if something's happened to the first one that you've appointed. They recommend that it's good if your care attorney is someone that's um, nearby locally because it just makes it easier if something suddenly happens um, and someone needs to make a decision for you. But people do frequently um, nominate their children who are not living in the same city or even the same country because communication is very good these days. You can get hold of people and find these things out. Um, when I talk to my clients about choosing their care attorney, I always promote the advanced care plan booklet that Jane mentioned to you. It is such a, a relief and, a, um, and it's so comforting for a care attorney to have had something that you've already discussed and filled out, and in particular section 6 which is an advanced directive that you fill out with your doctor, your GP or their nurse and you go through scenarios of what sort of treatment you'd want in different scenarios 
if you are no longer able to communicate that yourself. And this is recorded, <coughs> signed off by you and the doctor, and it's uploaded to the database for HealthLink South. So if you did have a medical emergency, you were picked up by an ambulance or taken to a hospital, they have access to that information. And in the enduring power of attorney notes, it says that your care attorney may be guided by any advice they've received from you or from an advanced directive. So it's, it's such, a, such a helpful thing for a care attorney that you've already filled one of those out. I would absolutely recommend it. So under the care enduring power of attorney, you can only have one attorney at a time. So you'd name who you feel is the most appropriate and then think about someone else that could step in if they can't act. Under your property enduring powers of attorney, there's quite a few more choices because under property, you can have more than one attorney and you can have the decision as to whether or not you want those attorneys to always have to act together or if they are able to act separately for you. Um, the attorneys you nominate always have to consult you and each other so that's a legal requirement anyhow. But I do caution people, they would sometimes say to me, I don't want any fights amongst my children, so I'm making all three property attorneys and they have to act together. That's quite, that can be a tricky situation because if one of them can't act, the other two can't either. So if you say jointly, all three or all two, both two, have to always be able to act together or no one can act. And if one of those attorneys dies, the other two can't act because you've made them joint. So it is better if you trust your attorneys to say they can act jointly or severally. And that allows you to have one, if they're available, can hop in and do it, but they have to consult the other and they have to consult you. But it allows them to get on and be able to deal with something. Um, and it also means if you for some reason fell out with one of them and didn't want them as an attorney. You could revoke them and it wouldn't revoke the others because they were always able to act separately. So it's wise to, if you trust them, and you trust they'll consult each other, to have them severally or joint and several. There's another decision you can make under property and that's when the enduring power of attorney is effective from. So you could leave it the same as your care enduring power of attorney, that it's only effective if you lose mental capacity, because you don't get a choice about that for care and welfare. It's only ever comes into effect if you've lost mental capacity. But for property, you have a choice. So you either say, I want this to come into effect only if I've lost mental capacity, or I want this to come into effect now and to continue if I lose mental capacity. I have found over the years that was the traditional response was no, only if I've lost mental capacity, because why would I want them to do anything before that? And then I've frequently had children coming in, adult children, where their elderly parent has lost physical capacity. They're bedridden, they can't do anything now, but because they've said in that enduring power of attorney it can only start from when they've lost mental capacity, the attorney isn't able to start acting for them. And so they have to wait until that point where they've actually lost mental capacity. 
So again, it's something to think about, but if you totally trust your attorneys, um, and knowing that they always have to consult you, even when you've lost mental capacity, they're meant to consult you as far as they can, then it would be easier on you to say that it's effective from, then, from when it's fully signed, and it continues in effect if you lose mental capacity. It, it would, in practice, allow an attorney to go into a bank and say, look, here's the document, I'm authorised to deal with their bank. If they did that, you hadn't asked them to, you would have a good indication of how far you could trust them. You'd have the opportunity to revoke them. Um, so the other thing I'm finding becoming quite common now is people who've got mental capacity and physical capacity, but they don't have the te technology skills to deal with banking now. And the banks are closing and the cheques have gone. And how on earth are they supposed to pay bills and do internet banking when they don't have the internet? So sometimes people might find it convenient to be able to have an attorney that can act while they've still got mental capacity to help them, you know, deal with these sort of issues that they can't deal with themselves and wouldn't have thought that, you know, back in the day when they could send their cheques, it wasn't an issue to them. So does allowing physical capacity allow that technical capacity as well? Yes, if you say it's effective from now on, yep. then it can it can happen for what no any reason. It could just be that the person, you know, they might just be at that stage where they don't want to have to deal with all this and they say to the person they've appointed as their attorney, would you mind dealing with this for me? And by having a document that says this is a, takes effect um, now and continues if I lose capacity, we call that a property attorney that's in effect now and they can take it in anywhere and, and deal with things for you. So the property attorney is required to um, act very carefully while you've got capacity obviously they can talk to you and get your permission for bits and pieces but if you lose mental capacity under law the property attorney is required to keep financial records of every transaction they enter on your behalf and it's a criminal offence to not have um, records if they're asked for them and so again talk to your attorneys that you are thinking of appointing because it is a role that is, needs to be taken seriously and they need to know what could be expected. I've got an information sheet that you can take away that we saw on one of the websites which is information on what does it mean to be an attorney and it goes through some of these aspects. But in particular, if you've lost capacity, they do have to have financial records of everything that they're doing. They can never benefit anyone apart from you, the donor. So I've had situation where mum's had a stroke, she's in hospital, and the attorneys have come in and said, oh look, I'm going to use mum's money to pay for flights for all the kids to come home because I know she'd want that. Um, absolutely can't do it because... Under the, it's clearly set out in the notes that you can only benefit the donor unless they have specifically stated in their enduring power of attorney document that you're allowed to benefit anyone else. So there are options under these forms where you can say if you want someone else to be benefited. And when I've discussed this with clients, I have had a few clients that have actually written in, if I have a medical event, you can use my money to pay for airfares for my children to come home. They've actually put it in there. You can say if you want attorneys to be able to make gifts on your behalf, 
if you've lost capacity to agree to it. Um, you have to be quite specific though about who the gift can be made to and for how much. So in some cases, you know, it could be a bit too <coughs> complicated to go down that track unless you particular. I have had people that said, I want <coughs> excuse me, wedding gifts bought for grandchildren or something, and I've talked about a range. <coughs> Again, the property attorney, if you've lost mental capacity, they must always be consulting your care attorney and they must be mindful of what your financial resources are like. They might have got to the level where it actually wouldn't be prudent to be making gifts out of your money. So your financial, your property attorney needs to sort of be aware of these things and able to deal with these things. There's an unusual little choice in there that people are surprised by. Um, do you authorise your attorney to sign a will on your behalf if you're not capable of signing a will? And I know the first reaction I get from people is, well, no, I've done my will, I, I don't want that. Um, I have went to a really interesting talk from um, the family law section who have dealt with um, people with mental health issues. And they said, look, for goodness sake, if you can talk to your clients about actually saying that you do allow that, it could be really helpful. Because if someone loses mental capacity, if you've left it open, you can only sign a will on their behalf if you've gone to the family court with the reasons why you feel this person needs a will and what needs to be in it. And the family court have to approve it. And if they approve it, the attorney is allowed to sign it. But if you've said in your document all those years ago, no, I don't authorise my attorney to sign a will on my behalf, they will never be able to do so. I have had an attorney had to get a will signed on behalf of the person he was acting for. It was um, a person who, it was his sister, and she had left everything to her parents. And I think if they had died before her, she left it to her brother. But both her parents had died, and he was older than her, and his concern was if he died before her, there was no one else for that estate to go through, and it was a significant estate. Um, whereas, in fact, if she'd thought about it, it could have gone on to his children. So we went to the family court with a proposed will. Um, the court appoint a lawyer to act for the sister, and they look into it, and they made their report and said, yes, we actually think this would be wise. The court approved it. The attorney was allowed to sign a will on her behalf. That's an example of when someone might need a will signed on their behalf. A complete change of circumstances where a will that someone's made is obvious to everyone. It couldn't now um, fulfil what they would have wanted and if they had been able to, they would have wanted an updated will. So do think about that choice. I must say most of my clients still say no, that's fine. But these are the choices you've got in these big documents. Now, the other choice you have, which are very different to your one-page document, you now talk about if you want your attorney to consult somebody else before they make a decision. So the consultation means the attorney must try and consult if they can and take on board the um, advice from that person when they make their decision. So this is very common to have people that you want to be consulted. So it might be that you've got one child, well you can only have one child for care and welfare, at a time, and you might say they have to consult your other children. And so you name them in there, and all their details are put in. 
There's a second step where you name who must be given information. So that's different because you don't have to consult them first, but if they come to you for information about the donor, the person that set this up, you must give them information. So again, it's a very handy step and it's seen as a good protection for to have someone out there that can ask your attorney what they're doing as a check on what they're doing, that they haven't gone rogue or doing bizarre things. But what you need to realise too is these people that you name to be consulted and to be given information, they don't sign the enduring power of attorney. Your attorney does and you do. So do make sure you tell them that you've named them to be consulted or that you've named them to be given information so that they're aware of it. And they can then go to that attorney if something's happened to you and say, do you mind telling me what you did with their house and, and what's happening with all those funds? They have to show you the financial records. They are required to show them as soon as possible. So two important steps that were brought in to protect you, which... Um, Give good thought to them and try and have some sensible choices in there, but actually do try and have someone that they should either consult or give information to. Again, I often have older people that will have their children as attorneys, but then they'll say, I want you to give information to my siblings and, or old dear friend type thing. Um, all these people that you mention, you do have to have their name, full names, addresses and phone numbers and things, because all that goes in the document now. So it's a contact point, but you don't need to worry about updating it if their contact details change. It's just the contact point as at the date that it's signed. So and just to reinforce again too, I've mentioned a couple of times, but while you've got mental capacity, <clears throat> you can revoke your attorneys at any time, or you could revoke the whole document. By setting up a new enduring power of attorney, that revokes the old one, but you still should give notice to the people that were named in the old one. Um, under these new forms, even if you don't want to give them notice, your lawyer can provide them with a copy of the new one to show them they're no longer an attorney, or your new attorney can provide them with a copy. But you can only make those changes or do those revocations while you've got mental capacity. It can happen that you have a health event, you are medically certified as having lost mental capacity, and then you regain it. And when that happens, you should put in writing to your attorney that I suspend your authority to act because I now have capacity. Again, it's something that should go in writing to the attorney and it suspends their ability to act. But it still makes your document sit there valid until it might be needed again. When attorneys do go in and sign documents on your behalf, they will most frequently be asked to sign a certificate with it the certificate stating that they haven't been revoked or they haven't been suspended, that they're aware of as at that date that they're signing for you. So that's a common thing that's signed by an attorney every time they sign for you. So that's the bulk of the information. So as I say, I've got a, um, a news a sheet here that's information for attorneys that you might find interesting. Um, and that's just a booklet that I made from Harmons a while ago, which covers lots of um, law issues for seniors. So it's wills and powers of attorney and trusts and all sorts of things, if you want to take one of those. And there's also some pens there too. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you very much for looking at that. It's really interesting, yeah. really 
informative and uh, I know it'll get a number of us started on that journey yeah. of doing the MPAs. Pleasure. Well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.